Welcome to Case by Case. This is a podcast series brought to you by Callum Chain and Luke Zadkovich from Zydafloid Zadkovich. How are you today, Callum? I'm very good. I think this is our, our fastest ever podcast from delivery of the judgment or the judgment being handed down to recording. I think you're right. I think you're right. We've gotten um, more excited than we usually do. Uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> A matter of hours before between um, publication of the judgment and jumping on here to hit record. Exactly. Something like that. Um, and, and look, Gray, I'm looking forward to getting into this one. Uh, it's, a, it's a meaty English sup- Supreme Court decision on unseaworthiness. They don't come along every day. But before I do, I thought I'd open today by welcoming everyone uh, we we really enjoy um, and are grateful for you for your patronage and, and listening in to the podcast we would be delighted if you um, clicked follow on spotify uh, and apple podcasts or subscribe or whatever it is um, and please do share this with your your internal teams um, we're, we're trying to build up our readership and uh, if you think that some of your colleagues whether it's on the legal side, the commercial side, um, or indeed the operational side, please do feel free to, to bring this to their attention. Um, we'd be grateful. Totally agree. We, we appreciate all of you. And uh, equally, please do keep getting in touch with, um, with feedback or, or requests. We do take those very seriously. And a number of these uh, podcasts have actually come about because of specific requests from certain listeners. So please do keep those coming too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we had we had Mark today for uh, releasing uh, a podcast on estoppel. Uh, but as mentioned, this one's hot off the press, so we thought we might shift around our uh, our lineup. Um, and the the episode with Aiden will come through next Thursday. Uh, and today we're talking about the decision in the the Elise nineteen fifty four. Uh, and another appellants versus Allianz uh, Elementar and uh, as respondents, and this is before Lord Reed, who's the president of the Supreme Court, Lord Briggs, Lady Arden, Lord Hamlin and Lord Leggett, delivered on 10 November 2021. It was heard in July over two days so where do we start with this one, Callum? Well, I think, I think, I think first we note the significance of the judgment. It, it's probably best known to our listeners as the CMA CGM Libra, and they may have been aware of this case as it went through the through the um, the, the court structure all the way up to the Supreme Court, looking at the question of seaworthiness, looking at the of the um, the obligation to exercise due diligence to ensure that a ship is seaworthy. Um, and really honing in on this point about whether seaworthiness is, is a test of a vessel's navigable state or a test of the vessel's navigation by the master and crew. Yeah, um, it's a it's a decision. Well, it's a it's a case that um, I know we've followed as it's gone through. Uh, I think we've written about it, perhaps spoken about it um, a couple of times since it's come through, and it is. Uh, it is good to see um, and, and to come back to these cases as they pass through from a theoretical academic kind of perspective uh, to see how the different levels of courts 
um, address the cases. And, and in this one, uh, Lord, uh, sorry, Justice, Mr. Justice Tia, who um, was an admiralty judge who gave the first instance decision, um, has had his judgment upheld both through the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. Exactly, and the su- the Supreme Court judgment really ties together all of the thinking of the of the lower courts. It's a really really good judgment. I I was reading through this and thinking this this could be a textbook on uh, on unseaworthiness on the Hague rules. It touches on so ma- so much authority. It's extremely thorough. It's it's extremely readable as well. So I, I, it's one of one of those judgments that I'd really recommend to our listeners to you know go on to the Supreme Court website and find the find the judgment and give it a read if you have any issues coming up around um, around unseaworthiness um, and the exercise of due diligence or the or the Hague rules. It's it's a fantastic judgment. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's going to become, I dare say, one of the first decisions that are given to maritime law students studying English law and, and, and beyond English law. It, it, it's, it's, as you say, thorough. It's well set out, of course. But it, it just goes through all the points so thoroughly. I also uh, couldn't help but see the very helpful um, summary at the end. You don't often see that. No, you don't. That was helpful. Yeah, in the decision itself. So you could, you know, listen to this podcast and what we make of it or you could just go to the last two pages of the judgment and, and read bullet points of uh, <laughs> the court exactly. summary we'll see our listenership drop off a cliff after that so. <laughs> <laughs> um, jokes aside there are some interesting points that came out of this and there's some comparative law uh, issues in there i think it's also worth listening in if you're on the uh, operational side of ship owners and indeed charters as well, because we'll touch on, I dare say, the the, the facts around passage planning uh, and how important that is uh, for ship owners, obviously for for navigational purposes, but but even from a um, a responsibility and liability perspective in, in view of this decision. Um, I think it's an area to to really think about as a ship owner. Totally agree. So, so should we should we start with the facts as we tend to give some context for for the for the law? So the vessel was, of course, the CMA CGM Libra, and there was a, a grounding of the vessel at Chiamen uh, Port in China, uh, where the vessel had essentially deviated off from the from the Boyd Fairway and had grounded. There, there was a there was a um, a notice that was that was kind of provided with the navigational charts um, that that gave some warning about a potential grounding in this area. the The latest version of the charts had been sent by the owners to the vessel. The vessel had received the up to date notice, but the notice had not been annotated to the chart. Um, and the the vessel then ultimately had this had this grounding event, um, and there was significant. Uh, there was significant damage, um, and a number of parties were. Well, uh, GA was declared. That's that's general average, which we've discussed in a previous podcast. But eff- effectively, general average is a is something that can be declared by a ship owner, where they have to take certain steps in order to preserve the uh, the voyage for the benefit of all of all the interested parties. And when the ship owner declares general average, then they seek a contribution from all those interested parties in order to keep the voyage going. So in this in this instance, the uh, the vessel owners declared general average for the repair work uh, following the grounding, 
And one of the, or a number of the cargo interests said, no, we're not, we're not paying general average. The basis on which they said they weren't paying general average was that the general average event itself, the grounding, was caused, they said, by some actionable fault of the owners. And that's the defense to a general average claim. Just, um, pausing so there, just pausing there for a moment, Callum, and it's somewhat of an aside, but did you did you pick up that most of the cargo owners did actually pay their contribution to general average and it was only 8% of cargo interests that refused to do so, uh, which equated to... I did to see a, that. Uh, sorry? I did see that. I thought it was very... A very interesting point, and it does show that there there is merit sometimes in running the arguments that don't necessarily jump out to you. Yeah, and and also from a from an owner's perspective, um, you've got to wonder. I haven't quite thought through how this affects the other cargo interests, whether they have paid, you know, under reservation, or whether they have an ability to claw back. Um, but it, but if so, then. The, the 800,000 odd that they were chasing from these particular cargo interests, um, it puts it into context because there's a lot on the line to, to pursue 8% and then ultimately end up in a situation where this goes against you. It's, it's a very interesting point. I wonder if there will be any follow-on claims from the remaining cargo interests having, having previously paid, um, seeking, seeking some money back. Yeah, I haven't thought that through to conclusion, but it, it was it was something that jumped out at me. And so, yeah, um, and one of the one of the causative events here, or and as as Callum has, well, if not the causative event that Callum has touched on, is this issue around the the passage plan documentation. So, if I can just touch on that again, because I think it's important. There was there's the chart. The British Admiralty chart, the BA 3449 document, as it's been called. And then there was this notice to mariners, uh, which um, has been called the NM uh, 6274. And though it was good that those two documents were there, um, but as a part of um, passage planning, there should have been a process by which um, the the warnings about uncharted depths or, or low depths in certain parts of Jimé uh, men um, should have been noted on the chart itself. And this goes to, which actually formed a really central part of, of the factual picture here, the, the guidelines um, for voyage planning, uh, which uh, are guidelines issued by the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, in 1999. And they, those guidelines set out four different stages to passage planning. There's the appraisal stage, the planning stage, the execution stage, and the monitoring, monitoring stage. And we don't have time to get into the ins and outs of that. But in the planning stage, the second of those four stages, it does say that the passage plan uh, should include the plotting of the intended route or track of the voyage or passage on an appropriate scale uh, scale chart with an indication of the true direction of the plan route or track and all areas of danger, quote unquote. And that, that part of it, this all areas of danger, 
really wasn't done uh, well and there was negligence involved in in the passage planning. And that was really the, 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 the negligence that forms the, uh, the basis upon which we're looking at. Is that negligence unseaworthiness of the vessel or is it um, navigation management or something kind of in between? Well, exactly. And the, the, well, one of the interesting points on the facts is that the, the vessel actually didn't follow the planned route. Mm. It, it went off the planned route and it was when it was off the planned route that it, that it grounded. Um, and the finding was that the reason that it went or that the finding was that had, had the, the map been properly annotated, had the, had the chart been properly annotated to show this area of specific danger, then the vessel wouldn't have gone off the planned route in that manner. So that's how it ties back in this grounding event mm. back into the to the to the negligence uh, slash unseaworthiness, and it really hinges in large part on Article Three and Article Four of the Hague Rules, which I imagine will be familiar to a number of our listeners, uh, but maybe not all of them. So, for the for the benefits of of them, and, and I think probably for us in going through this podcast, I'm just going to kind of read in Article Three which says the carrier shall be bound before and at the beginning of the voyage to exercise due diligence to A, make the ship seaworthy. And then it goes on to say properly man, equip and supply the ship and also make the holds refrigerating and cool chambers and all of the parts of the ship in which the goods are carried fit and safe for the reception, carriage and preservation. Um, and then it says uh, Article 3, Rule 2, Subject to the provisions of Article 4, the carrier shall properly and carefully load, handle, stow, carry, keep, care for, and discharge the goods carried. So the effect of Article 3 of the Hague Rules and the Hague-Bisbee Rules is to set out responsibilities um, and liabilities of the carrier. And then in Article 4, in the following article, you then have rights and immunities of the carrier. So you have this regime where in Article 3, you have the responsibilities and liabilities. And then in Article 4, you have kind of corresponding um, immunities and rights for the carrier. And Article 4, Rule 1 talks about, the, it says, neither the carrier nor the ship shall be liable for loss or damage arising or resulting from unseaworthiness unless caused by want of due diligence on the part of the carrier to make the ship seaworthy. And it goes on from there. Um, and Article 4, Rule 2 sets out a number of different um, things for which the carrier is not responsible for loss or damage, um, including uh, errors of navigation, which is covered under Article, Article um, 4, Rule 2a, which says neither the carrier nor the ship shall be responsible for loss or damage arising from uh, arising or resulting from act, neglect, or default of the master, mariner, pilot, or the servant's of the carrier in the navigation or in the management of the ship. Yeah. So that's really the key, the, the key terms on which this, this dispute centered. Yeah. So you have just to kind of summarize a little bit there, I think it is useful to set it all out, but you have the obligation to exercise due diligence um, to make the vessel seaworthy on one side of the ledger, so to speak. And then you have this exception, this, the, 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 this exception from responsibility for act, neglect, uh, default in the navigation and management of the ship. So you've got the, the seaworthiness breach on one side and the exception for navigation and management. And there's, there's, I think, generally a bit of a tendency to say, well, if you fall within an exception, great. 
um, then then there's there's no um, no issue from a, a, a ship owner's perspective and the seaworthiness claim fails. And what this judgment makes very clear, and, and this this is not new, but it's it, it's um, clarified and, and and reaffirmed here is that if there is a breach of the uh, the obligation of of providing a seaworthy ship, that is a, the due diligence obligation, then um, that that's enough. That 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 gets you liability against the ship owner. They can't then rely upon the the navigation exception. Exactly, and that's that that was previously the case from a privy council decision uh, called Maxine Maxine Footwear against the Canadian Canadian government merchant marine or some. Uh, some uh, Canadian government organization, which is a 1959 Privy Council case, which is affirmed in this uh, Supreme Court decision. But that's the, the, that's really the thrust of it: is that you have this mirroring, um, these mirroring rights and um, immunities versus the responsibilities and liabilities. So Article Three, Rule One, is then uh, kind of limited by Article Four, Rule One, and Article Three, Rule Two, is limited by Article Four, Rule Two. But Article 4, Rule 2, which gives you all these exceptions, doesn't limit the Article 3, Rule 1 requirement to have to exercise due diligence to provide a seaworthy vessel. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I think a, la- a large part of, of the decision was devoted to this, uh, this argument that owners led, and we've heard this before in, in practice, that there's, there's an attribute threshold um, in the unseaworthiness test. And by that, what I mean is that to kind of get into unseaworthiness and, and arguing that a vessel is unseaworthy is that it needs to really be something that goes to the attribute of the vessel rather than a navigation-type negligence or na- navigation issue. And the, the owners really seem to hang their hat a lot on that. Um, they relied on the Aqua, Tra- Aqua Charm uh, decision and the Apostolos decisions. And the court went through, through both of those in quite some detail and then moved on to, to look at what the commentators said about this kind of attribute threshold. And the leading commentators, um, including Aikens, on bills of lading and Carver on charter parties are against it and have been against it for quite some time. Uh, Lord Justice Flo of the Court of Appeal has described it as an unnecessary gloss. And, and ultimately, the, the Supreme Court in this decision has clarified that there is no um, attribute threshold to get into an unseaworthiness claim. Uh, that is not part of the law. Yeah, this was this was relatively thoroughly dispatched with, uh, particularly at paragraph ninety two of the judgment, where um, Lord uh, Lord Hamlin, I think it was Lord Hamlin, gave the lead judgment. It was Lord Hamlin, um, where Lord Hamlin said that if there is an attribute threshold, it is clear on the authorities that it must be widely and diversely drawn, and he then lists out all the different things that have been held to cause unseaworthiness that would then have to fall within this attribute threshold. And he says this, it refers to charts, it refers to piping plans, it refers to the abilities of the crew, it refers to the adequacy of the vessel systems, it refers to cargo storage, it, refer, it, it refers to uh, residues of previous cargoes, it refers to the vessel's trading history. 
And if all of those things have to be contained within within a general legal concept of this uh, attribute threshold to get into seaworthiness, then it's very unclear what, what the nature of the attribute would have to be. And so the test kind of falls. And if you, as, as you say, Luke, that's also the position from Aikens and Bills and Carver on charter parties. Um, so it's a pretty esteemed company to uh, that say that there is actually, in fact, no attribute threshold. Yeah, exactly. I think Carver says that, uh, that a requirement that the cause of the damage must be an attribute of the ship itself rather than an rather than an extrinsic cause, can be difficult to apply in practice and can lead to anomalies. Um, exactly. I think that, that really sums it up. Um, the, yeah, so, so the, then the, the court looked at this, um, this other test, uh, the, the prudent owner test. Um, and this uh, is set out in um, Carver, a treatise on the law relating to the carriage of goods by sea. Um, and it has been around for um, a long old time. There is, there is the point made in this judgment that it is not a universal test of unseaworthiness. So you don't look at the prudent owner test um, and say, well, does it fit within that or not? Then that's the answer to unseaworthiness. But it is, it is a useful place to start. And, and really the prudent owner test is... Um, if the owner were to be aware of the alleged unseaworthy uh, unseaworthiness condition, defect or whatever it is, um, would they correct that or would they remedy, remedy that prior to the vessel going out to sail, um, you know, acting prudently? And, and, and that... That's, it's a, a useful test, as the, the Supreme Court has noted here, because there's a, an element of flexibility. There's, an, a, there's objectivity in it, but there's also flexibility to deal with different scenarios. So the court um, reaffirmed that that is a, um, a, a useful place to start. It comes from the McFadden and Blue Star case in 1905, um, and it's really a, a useful place to start on any unseaworthiness um, uh, analysis, but it's not the end point. It's not the only point, even though it's the usual and conventional test. Yeah, and it, I felt like this was almost a point where owners had succeeded in in getting a pretty helpful authority, you know, for for, for future cases, really in in the in in the legal terms that they wanted. It was just that on the facts, they then didn't kind of bring home the the arguments that they were going for but it, it seemed you know following this supreme court decision there's there's almost a gateway test which is that there first off well you, you there has to be this thing which is which a prudent owner so there has to be some sort of defect or or an issue which a prudent owner um would would, would not have uh, left um in its in its defected state um for it to, for something to be unseaworthiness but also that that issue, that problem, that defect has to has to sufficiently affect the fitness of the vessel to carry the goods safely on the contractual voyage. Yeah, and that second part, I, it wasn't something that I was really aware of as being a kind of stipulated legal test for unseaworthiness prior to this decision. So that that feels like a shift in the law a little bit, which is probably an important point for us all to be on top of. Um, 
and it's kind of one which owner succeeded in getting across the line. It's just that they then, um, on the facts, the the, the judge, the, the Supreme Court held uh, that that the, in this in this instance, the, um, the the defect did sufficiently affect the fitness of the vessel to carry the goods safely. So they, you know, despite despite having this tweak in the law, they didn't uh, get home on it. It's a good point to emphasise. Um... And I say that because I can think of other cases, right, where you don't have as uh, as catastrophic a result as this one. Um, there's a serious uh, failure here, failure to note depths within a port um, on a chart and to really, you know, demonstrate that you've properly planned for the passage through a, a difficult area. Um and the consequence of that is quite clearly uh, foreseeable um, and a very serious consequence for crew safety, for vessel safety, um, for the safety of others. And this test allows for um, a proportionality, if you like, and the court doesn't use that word, but there's a proportionality embedded in that objective test exactly it and that's that's taken from the uh, the aqua the aqua charm um where the the vessel was overloaded and the overloading of the vessel was something that certainly a prudent owner would not have left um you know would, wouldn't have left in that state they would have they would have required that to be resolved a prudent owner would have said no this vessel's overstowed we can't sail with the vessel in an overstowed condition kind of of course they would um but in, in that in that case, the consequence of the of the overloading was the fact that the vessel couldn't go through the Panama Canal. So it was an inconvenience. It had to take a different route to get to its discharge port, but it didn't affect the safety of the voyage. It was a it was an, a temporary or minor impediment. I think was is the phrase that was used in a different case to describe the distinction between the two. One is a kind of safety issue, and the other is a um, this temporary or minor impediment. And unless you're through that safety gateway um to the to the vessel or or her cargo then on on the basis of this uh, supreme court decision you you then don't get into the question of seaworthiness another really um interesting example on, on this same point callum i thought was the the porthole example i thought that really make, makes it uh clear and this i'm looking at the um the section dealing with defects that can be remedied at paragraph 102 as an aside did you see that um described the failure failure to have an emergency guy did not amount to unseaworthiness i kind of, yeah. I kind of thought I'd, I don't know how often you know the colloquial word guy is used in a supreme court judgment but there you go <laughs> yeah it's probably not an emergency an emergency man just on on standby yeah, so I, he, I thought it was a technical there. term. <laughs> anyway, um, it, this is the the Madras Electrical Supply and P&O Steam Navigation case of 1924 where Lord Justice Scrutton um, uh, gave judgment. And he was exploring um, this and setting out this example of where you have a porthole that is left open on a, on a vessel 
Um, and there's another couple of cases, believe it or not, that, did, that reference these types of porthole cases where if the porthole is easy to reach by the crew and can be closed, you know, uh, without any difficulty, then that would not be something that goes to um, unseaworthiness. It would not be expected that a prudent owner would ensure that that porthole was closed before the vessel sailed. It might be closed shortly after it sails. It doesn't really go to seaworthiness. But if that porthole is in a, in a position where um, it cannot be closed easily or you know, closed at all before it sails, or it is in a position where safety could really be a concern, then that is something that could go to making the vessel unseaworthy. Uh, and again, you, you can see how this, this concept of consequence or safety comes into the analysis of that prudent owner test. Yeah, exactly. You can you can see where you you can you can start to feel where where there is going to be a seaworthiness issue versus an inconvenience issue, hmm. um, and I think it's it it makes a lot of sense this uh, this judgment to identify that it's not simply a case of saying what would a prudent owner have done. You then have to have to also say did did what the prudent owner or did what a prudent owner would not have done that was done and in fact in this case. Did that affect the fitness of the vessel to carry the goods safely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just changing, um, changing tack a little bit. Um, I thought I was interested by the U.S. Uh, case law analysis in this. Uh, and again, this was something introduced by owners um, as the appellants trying to to overturn the decision. Um, and, and they were pointing to a number of U.S. cases to say. Um, why the attribute threshold should be part of the, the seaworthiness, seaworthiness uh, test or unseaworthiness test, um, and also other cases to support their position. And um, it, it, it was an, an interesting analysis, as, as um, you know, Callum and, and our listeners have no doubt come to um, hear, we are very interested in um, differences between the English uh, position on uh, shipping cases, commodity cases, and the U.S. position because we handle um, handle cases on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm, you know, I'm an English solicitor and a and a New York attorney, and uh, Callum's an English solicitor, uh, and regularly has um, work on both sides of of the Atlantic as well. So we're we're often curious uh, about those differences, highlighting them, looking at them, and. What struck me about this area of the the decision was that um, there were some cases introduced uh, by the owners and the court really looked at those and said, well, they would have been of assistance to owners if they demonstrated a uniform approach. And I was trying to think, is that is that uniform between the U.S., and between England or is that uniform within the US? And I think actually it was a combination of both. Um, uh, but, and I've got some, you know, some points on that, Calm, but did, did you have any, any observations on, on the US section? I did, and I think it, it went to something that was talked about at the top of the judgment where they looked at the history of the, the implied obligation of seaworthiness, the fact that 
there was then um, owners found themselves in a very strong bargaining position at the start of the 20th century and then uh, as as a kind of uh, rowing back of the, of the way that owners were um, con- contracting out of their uh, absolute obligation of seaworthiness, you then ended up with this international treaty, the Hague Rules, which pulled together a compromise effectively between the, the cargo interests on the one side and the vessel owners on the other side. And there's, there's, there's also a very recent Supreme Court authority that says that when you're dealing with interpretation of a, an international uh, document or an international set of terms like the Hague Rules are, really what the court should be doing is not trying to apply any kind of English law idiosyncrasies to uh, those terms. They should be trying to interpret those terms in the way that they're helpful to be interpreted in the international context which they were designed to achieve. And I think that's where this US law, um, these US law cases really, you know, the door is kind of opened for uh, owners to bring in these arguments where they say, look, there's a wealth of authority in um, under US law and it makes sense internationally for, or it makes sense under English law principles for the international interpretation of the Hague rules to be consistent. And that's why we need to really give special, uh, you know, a special standing to the uh, US court's approach to the Hague rules. And I think the fact that the US courts have not necessarily interpreted them in the different circuits or in the different stages in an entirely consistent way it meant that the, the the Supreme Court here was able to say, okay, well, if there had have been a really consistent US approach that would that has some kind of bearing on the way that the English courts have also interpreted these decisions um, or interpreted these these terms, then we would be minded to follow it. But in this case, there hasn't been such a, that, you know, that consistent approach doesn't exist. So we're not falling foul of any internationally agreed interpretation of the Hague rules by interpreting it the way that we think they're written. Yeah, well said. Well said. Uh, and that, that, was a, that was a key point, wasn't it? Because there was this decision going back many, many years, I think 1901, the International Navigation and, and Far and Bailey Manufacturing decision um, from the US Supreme Court the highest court in the US, uh, which um, it found that um, it was uh, just like the English law position, that it wasn't um, uh, it wasn't an exception to um, a breach of the seaworthiness obligation uh, if the the fault was caused through navigation or through um, uh, through management of the vessel. So there was this kind of shutting down of of the nautical exception for seaworthiness cases, and that goes back many many years from the highest court in the U.S. And then the owners relied on decisions from other circuit, particular circuits. So you know the U.S. is is split up into different circuits, uh, and there had been some decisions that. Court of Appeals levels in the in the um, in the U.S. on certain points that may have supported owners' position, but there wasn't that harmony. There, there wasn't that uniformity across the decisions to really overturn the international navigation decision, um, or to say that the um, the English law authority should be uh, looked at in light of a prevailing U.S. position that. You know, from a, a global um, harmony perspective, should all be brought together. But that, it, it's interesting to see, though, that there is this 
there is deference, there is respect, um, and there is some reliance or could be reliance, um, you know, in cases across across the border in, in both directions because we often think Absolutely. of... Sorry. I, I, I totally agree. Absolutely. The, I think you can, even looking at that international navigation case, you can see how intertwined the, the two systems, uh, you know, historically have been. Um, where that that was a decision that was uh, it was a judgment of the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, but in reaching their decision, they relied upon authority from the English Court of Appeal, and the English Court of Appeal decision was based on a contract that had incorporated U.S. legislation. So you have this complete commingling of the of the of the two um, legal systems in in that case, and there's. It, it strikes me that there is, as you say, there's deference, there's respect, there's there's scope to use international legal principles to, whether it's to plug holes or to reinforce arguments in in the way that in in the way that you're seeing a case in English law, even if the English law doesn't provide for that specific um, that specific argument that you're running. Mm. With your your French interest, did you pick up anything from? The, the French analysis of, of the Hague rules and the <laughs> discussions. That's a by the by. You don't really have to get into that. <laughs> no, but I, it, it is it is a pub quiz question for the future. What's the what's the um, correct language or what's the what's the language to get the true interpretation of the Hague rules? And it turns out that language is French. The French version is the authoritative version. Exactly. I didn't know that. I probably should have known it, but I didn't know it until I read it here. <laughs> yeah. No, I, mean, I, I wonder if it's helpful to, I, I think we're getting towards towards mm. the limit of our time. I wonder if it's helpful to try and pull all these legal principles back into the case. Yeah. Um, and so just to kind of go back to first principles, what we had here was we had a cargo interest um, and the owners were saying to that cargo interest, you need to pay some money towards the repairs for our, for our ship. Um, that, that had this grounding in China. And the cargo interest was saying, no, we don't have to because this this grounding occurred through your actionable fault. It, it occurred through something that you did that was in, in breach of the agreement. And the thing that you did that was in breach of the agreement was that you failed to exercise due diligence. And the owners then came back and said, well, that doesn't matter because our failure to exercise due diligence is exempt under the Hague Rules, Article 4, Rule 2. And there was then this this, this debate about whether the Article 4, Rule 2 uh, exemption for errors of navigation applied to this, uh, this unseaworthiness issue. Um, and the court found that, it, that, it, that firstly, it didn't. First, the first principle, as we discussed at the start of the, of the podcast, was that the Article 3, uh, Rule 1 provision uh, re- that requires the owner to exercise due diligence to make a ship seaworthy is not something that they can then exempt from the Article 4, Rule 2 exemptions. They refer to to cargo loss uh, other than for the failure to exercise due diligence. Um, and secondly, that this was a case of unseaworthiness, that the, the, the owners hadn't exercised um, due diligence simply by ensuring that the latest charts and the latest notices were on board. It was all within the orbit of the owner's responsibility that the, um, the, that the master and the crew would then annotate the, the, the chart itself um, and provide the proper uh, voyage plans. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, and in doing so, they clarify that the Supreme Court clarified that um, there is no attribute threshold to the concept of unseaworthiness. Uh, they re-established, re-reconfirmed that the 
um, prudent owner test is a good one to apply. Um, it's it's a great starting place and it's well suited to adapt to differing and changing standards. Um, it's not the test, you know, capital letters the, but it's 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 not the sole test if you like. There are other elements or aspects to it, um, but it's a really good place to start. Um, whether the defect can be remedied, remedied um, is a relevant factor on unseaworthiness. It, it kind of falls within the, the prudent owner test, so to speak. Uh, and when you're when you're looking at that prudent owner test in in the context of um, unseaworthiness, if the potential defect or negligence um, is very serious or could have quite serious effects, then that will um, certainly lead towards uh, more likely finding of uh, unseaworthiness. And here, in the context of passage planning, the the planning stage, so that second stage under the, the IMO guidelines for vessel um, planning, um, where there is negligence, um, in that planning that can form an unseaworthiness defect um, even though the court said even though that is a, a navigation negligence the court didn't try to say that this was this was a defect or an inherent problem with the vessel itself it wasn't it was a it was a failure to um, to to navigate in a way um, because they didn't um, prepare those charts in view of the specific notice to mariners uh, for its voyage. And, and that planning negligence and navigable type negligence can still be a unseaworthiness um, issue. Exactly. So, look, I think that's that's a perhaps a good place to, to round up, Callum. It, it's a fascinating decision um, unseaworthiness is really kind of the the, the, the classic um, shipping type claim, isn't it? It's one of the first ones we all learn about when we when we get into this area. Um, and so to have a, a Supreme Court decision that pulls it all together in this way is um, it's exciting. I think you're right. I'm glad we I'm glad we've we've caught it on the day it comes out and we've captured it in this podcast. Great. Well, look, we hope you all enjoyed listening to to this episode. Um, as I said at the outset, we'd be grateful if you if you subscribe to our podcast um, and uh, and let us know if you if you find this of use, relevance, particularly those out there um, in the industry. We want to to help you um, improve the way that you do your business, improve safety, um, try to avoid scenarios like this happening. Obviously, for for the for the issue itself, and also um, for potential liabilities. So, so let us know if this format works for you. If there are tweaks you'd like to hear, or particular topics to talk about, um, we'd be pleased to do so. Cheers, everybody. Next time.